Stay with us a minute. You can talk among yourselves. If... There we go. Is this one working? Excellent. Perfect. So, Bob, yeah, he, I was allowed you take your coffee. Julie Andrews. I thought, what on earth has Mary Poppins got to do with it? Um, and, yeah, the blank look on my face, and he it's like, white nun. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, uh, and, uh, and that reminded me of, uh, of course, it reminded me of, of The Sound of Music. Uh, and I was reminded of uh, the song uh, in The Sound of Music. Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. When you read, you begin with ABC. When you... Sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. And I, I thought when you begin a new ministry, you start with Genesis 1, 2, 3. I don't think any pastor has ever sung that one before. When I was coming to the end of my time at uh, seminary, all the advice was start with a gospel or uh, ease yourself in with Ephesians or Colossians. I obviously ignored that advice. I, I'm not proposing that we start in Genesis 1 and work our way through the entire Bible. I figured out that if we did that, we would get to Revelation, or the end of Revelation, around 2050, uh, which incidentally is around the time I will expect to retire. But you know, there is some good wisdom contained in those words that Maria von Trapp sang. Start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Uh, and the reason there is some wisdom contained there is it, it, it has struck me many times how easy it is for Christians to somehow disassociate the New Testament from the Old. And in particular, how easy it is to sort of confine the book of Genesis to being some sort of collection of fairy stories that are somehow superseded when the real message gets underway in the Gospels. And I want to say I think that is a huge mistake. Uh, as I said a couple of weeks ago uh, to those of you who were, were here, the plan is that we're going to divide Genesis into four. It naturally divides into four sections anyway. Uh, and over the next four years, the plan is we're going to consider one section at some point each year. Because Genesis is absolutely, utterly foundational for the Christian faith. Genesis means beginnings. This is a book of beginnings. And it provides the basis for understanding the whole of the rest of the Bible. Genesis introduces us to the true and living God. It introduces us to the reality of his existence, the reality of his grace, the reality of his desire to bless the world. But Genesis also introduces us to ourselves and to the reality of human sin its origin, its consequences. And therefore it introduces us to our need for Jesus. So this book of beginnings is a very good place to start. The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of God's message of good news to the world. And my prayer is that as we study it together, we will be enthralled by God himself and drawn ever closer to our saviour, the Lord Jesus, to whom Genesis points us. Now, if this morning you are hoping for a seminar on creation, looking in depth at different viewpoints, uh, you'll be sorely disappointed because, believe it or not, that is not the reason Genesis 1 exists. And in fact, this morning we're only going to be looking at the very first verse 
Uh, last week, we only looked at a single verse of Scripture. We're doing the same again this morning. And if we did that, it would take us beyond 2050 to get to the end of the Bible. But we're going to look at the rest of chapter 1 next week. But right at the outset, it may just be in, uh, helpful if I set out my stall so that we're clear at least where I stand. Uh, I believe that a literal understanding of Genesis 1 is the best interpretation of the biblical material. God created the world from nothing in six literal days. Uh, I believe that's the best understanding of Genesis 1 when you bear in mind the rest of Scripture as well. But that is not the primary reason the Bible begins the way it does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why does the Bible begin like that? It's not a scientific proposal, but rather it is an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to bow in, in worship and adoration before the one true living God who created all things by the power of his voice. It's an invitation to worship him and to come in faith to Christ, the living word, the one who makes this God knowable, an invitation to worship. Genesis 1.1 calls us to bow in worship before God. First of all, to bow in worship at the greatness of God. How great is our God? In the beginning, God. This is the God who is. This is the God who is real, who exists, the one true living God. In the beginning, God. A few years ago, uh, a poll discovered that only around a third of British adults believe that there is a God. Another 20% believe there is some kind of greater spiritual power, but even so, the statistics are, are worrying. More worrying than that is that when that poll uh, looked at those who self-identify as Christian, among them, only 55% believe that God exists. Work that one out. Seems to me the existence of God is pretty fundamental to Christianity. Uh, and it strikes me that in this culture, this society that we live in these days, where the very existence of God is debated and, and doubted, it means our approach to evangelizing this culture needs to be pretty different. We need to start a few steps back. Before we even get to the cross, we often have to convince people of the existence of God. A God who created, a God who has the right to determine what is right and wrong. The God who hates sin and yet lovingly offers forgiveness. And right here at the beginning of the Bible, we discover that God is. That may not sound like something radical to you this morning, but perhaps we just need to be reminded that God is. He is there. He is greater than our minds can fathom, the true and living God. It calls us to bow in worship at his greatness. Now, I wonder if you've ever considered the context in which the book of Genesis was written. It was written by Moses. Moses, of course, was the man who led the Israelites out of Egypt, the people of God, out of their slavery in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness towards the promised land. And all that happened around 1,500 years before Jesus was born. So however old the earth actually is, 
Genesis 1 was written a long time after, after creation happened by a man who wasn't there. And yet the rest of the Bible accepts Genesis and all the other books that Moses wrote, the rest of the Bible accepts them as accurate and authoritative. Moses was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting when we consider why. The people he's led out of Egypt were the descendants of Jacob, those who were the inheritors of God's promise to Abraham. And yet they'd spend a long time in slavery in Egypt, living in a land where many gods were worshipped, false gods were worshipped. Egyptian religion had, had many gods, it had many myths. And yet the Israelites were a people who believed in one God. They were the minority. They stood in stark contrast to the, the prevailing culture of the day. They were the weird ones. Do you get that feeling? And as the Israelites now wandered in the wilderness, you, you can perhaps imagine them asking Abraham, or asking Moses about Abraham and the promises God had made to him. You can imagine them wondering, perhaps, about their ultimate origin and asking their leader, well, where did we come from? Perhaps they questioned their beliefs as opposed to the religion of Egypt in which they'd been immersed. And it's in that context that God gives Moses his word. This is, this is not Moses' thoughts about God. This is God himself speaking through Moses, telling us about himself. God is the, the subject from the very first word of the Bible. God is revealing truth about himself and about his greatness. And so against that backdrop of Egypt's false religion that the Israelites had been immersed in for, for generations, against that, Moses writes about the one true living God, and he, he answers that pagan worldview, not, not only of Egypt, but of all the other nations around. And he affirms the reality of God, and as of his supreme greatness. And against the, the Egyptian creation myths, Moses writes this majestic chapter about the creative genius of the real God. And he gives this sweeping and, and radical affirmation of the existence of the one true and living God. And he, and he invites us in the, just the opening verse to bow in worship at the greatness of the real God, the one true living God, the God who is. What else are we able to understand about the greatness of God in verse 1. Not only is he the God who is, but he's the God who has always been. He's eternal and uncreated. He's there at the very beginning. He's there before the beginning. He's already there. Before there was even so much as an atom. The God of the Bible is eternal and uncreated. When, when time began, God is already there. He is self-existent. He has no beginning and no end. Uh, and in Psalm 90, Moses sings the praise of this eternal and uncreated God. And he says this, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, Genesis 1.1 invites us to come and just bow in worship before the God who is and has always been. The God who just is there. 
And you know, it strikes me that there are times in the Christian life where we go through very dark times. Times where maybe we feel empty. What comfort there is in just knowing that God is there. Everything in our minds has a beginning and an end. And yet God doesn't. He's always been. Genesis is, the, is this book of beginnings, and yet God himself has no beginning. He has no origin. And because he has no beginning, he will have no end. We're not invited to get our heads around it. Our minds are blown by such thoughts. We're not invited to try and understand it. This is a faith position. We're invited, we're called to believe it. And we're invited to come and bow in wonder and worship at the greatness of God, the true and living God who is and who has always been the eternal God. He's, he's there before the creation of the universe. How great is our God. And yet we live in a world, we live in a humanity that tries to do its hardest to do away with him, to live without reference to him, as if we do not need him. An atheist was walking through the woods one day, marveling at the beauty of the trees and the hills and the river, and of course he, he could ascribe the beauty of that to nobody in particular, but he was marveling at its, its beauty, and as he rounded a bend, he came face to face with a grizzly bear, and the atheist turned and fled, but it wasn't long before the bear's shadow caught up with him, and he tripped, and as the bear stood over him, the atheist cried out, help me, God! Time stood still, the bear froze. The river stopped and a loud voice boomed, Oh, I thought you didn't believe in me. Am I now to count you as a believer? The atheist thought about it and replied, Well, I'm in a bit of a sticky situation. I wondered if you could help, but it would be a bit hypocritical of me to all of a sudden start believing in you. So perhaps you could make the bear a Christian instead. Well, the river, the river started to flow. The bear stooped down over the atheist and said, Lord, for this meal I'm about to receive, I'm truly thankful. <laughs> You know, so many people live as though God is not there until they need him. As if he doesn't matter until they want him. And they stubbornly refuse to believe the evidence, even when he speaks to them. But it does not change the reality. It does not change the fact that God is eternal and uncreated God who is there. And if that is perhaps you this morning, maybe you live life as if God doesn't exist. Let me lay it on the line. You cannot change the fact that God is. He is the living God, eternal God, in whom we find our very life and purpose. Stephen Hawking's book, Brief History of Time, begins like this. We find ourselves in a bewildering world. We want to make sense of what we see around us and to ask, what is the nature of the universe? What is our place in it? Where did we come from? Why is the universe the way it is? And Hawking goes on to express the hope that human beings will answer those questions without recourse to God. And yet the Bible is clear from the very first words, those questions have no answer without God. Humanity has sought explanations for the inexplicable, answers for the unfathomable, and yet nothing changes the reality that God is. God is there. 
God exists. The true and living God is way beyond that which our finite human minds can understand. He's eternal and uncreated. He was there before the beginning. What else about the greatness of God? He exists. He's eternal. But also notice that he is greater outside of and greater than the universe itself. God is not part of creation. He is not part of the universe in which we live. He's above and beyond it. He created it. He exists outside and beyond the universe. He is greater than it all. And no matter how great humanity becomes, God is greater. No matter how wise and knowledgeable humanity becomes, God is greater still. We will never understand him or get the measure of him because he is greater. We can never fathom him out. If we look out uh, on a clear starry night, we may see apparently around 10,000 stars. But there are billions of other stars in our galaxy and billions of other galaxies out there. Apparently, I don't know, I don't know what these numbers mean, uh, but apparently the size of a galaxy, of a galaxy is 600,000 trillion miles. Those are just words and numbers. I've got no idea how big that is, but apparently it's true. And each galaxy can be around 20 million trillion miles away from the next one. Those numbers are mind-bogglingly huge. All of which means that the universe that God created is unfathomably ginormous. And apparently galaxies are not fixed in space but are moving away from one another. So the universe is constantly expanding. So what does that tell us about the God who created it? The God who is beyond and outside of this created universe. If we cannot even measure the size of the universe because it is so big and is getting bigger, if God is outside the universe, if he is bigger than an ever-increasing universe, it's as if God is saying to humanity, you will never get the measure of me. I am greater than you can even begin to imagine. And if God is greater than the universe, if God is bigger than we can begin to grasp, then it means that no matter how big our difficulties, no matter how deep our darkness is, God is bigger than them all. He is greater than it all. And Genesis 1-1 invites us to come and worship and fall down before the God who is. The God who is pre-existent, the God who is outside and above what we can See, this this God, the God of the Bible, is unfathomable in every way. He was there in the beginning, above all that he has made, greater than the darkness and chaos of our lives. We're invited to bow in worship at the staggering, awesome greatness of God. Second, we are invited to bow in worship at the glory of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If the first four words introduce us to the all-surpassing greatness of God, then the rest of the verse introduces us to the awesome glory of God. You see, not only is the God of the Bible great, he is utterly glorious. He's the creator God. And all of creation, the Bible says, sings his glory. 
In creation, we see something of the glory of the uncreated God. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, the psalmist says. Creation speaks about the glory of its creator. Romans 1.20 picks up on uh, the same theme. Paul says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Creation reveals the glory of its creator. The stars, the fingerprints of God. The sun is a mere smidgen of his radiance. The moon reminds us that he doesn't sleep at night. The vastness of space reflects the infinity of his wisdom. The lion hints at God's fearlessness. The bear at his power. Every tree points towards heaven. Every bird has a song to sing. Every flower is a taste of his beauty. There is nothing accidental or irrelevant about any of creation. The trouble is, in our busy lives, we so rarely take the opportunity to gaze in wonder at the God of creation. It is a beautifully designed world that points us to the glory and the beauty of its designer. All of creation has a message. It it says to us, listen and look. There is a God and he is glorious. In creation, we can see just something of the stunning, dazzling glory of our creator, God. All of creation sings his glory, and therefore so should we. God, verse 1 says, created the heavens and the earth. That's a way of saying absolutely everything. There is nothing that has been created that God did not create. The whole universe, the heavenly realm as well as the earthly, everything made by God to reflect his glory. The universe is not the result of chance. It is not an accident. There there was nothing there before the beginning to have an accident. It was all created by God and reveals something of his dazzling glory. It doesn't mean we're to worship the creation. We're to worship the creator. Creation points us towards him. Just think, if the creation is so stunningly beautiful, and it is, then just contemplate how stunningly beautiful the creator must be. How wise and creative, how glorious he is. John Glenn was the first American to orbit the Earth in 1962. Years later, he went into space again, and he said, to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is, to me, impossible. Apollo 8 was the first space mission to orbit the moon. And its commander, Frank Borman, radioed Earth on Christmas Eve 1968 and quoted from Genesis 1. Seeing the Earth from space inspired him, reminded him of his creator. He later said this, I had an enormous feeling that there had to be a power greater than any of us. There had to be a God. He saw a glimpse of the glory of the creator. 1969, Neil Armstrong reflected that he had been granted a rare privilege to see some of the grandest views of the creator. Not of creation, but of the creator, he said. The creation pointed him to the creator. They, 
those men glimpsed something of the glory of God in the wonder of his creation. Genesis 1.1 tells us God created the heavens and the earth and it invites us to bow in worship at his glory. And yet the Bible says, although God has revealed something of himself in creation, that is not his full and final communication to us. And so Genesis 1.1 invites us, thirdly, to bow in worship at the grace of God. As we try to grasp something of the greatness and the glory of the God of the Bible, the God that Moses introduces us to in this very first verse, as we try to grasp something of his greatness and glory, I wonder if you're like me and wonder how and why he should be interested in us. And, and this is where we, we need to piece together the jigsaw and, and fit Genesis 1-1 into the wider gospel narrative of the whole Bible. Uh, this opening passage of the Bible has inspired many other biblical authors to write glorious, poetic songs of praise. One of those is Psalm 8, written by King David, where he says this, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. As David considered the greatness of the creator God, as he glimpsed something of God's glory in creation, he then asks, how is it? Why is it that you, the creator God, should be interested in humans like me. The God who is. The eternal God. The one true living God who created the universe. This God is mindful of you and me. The population of earth stands at just over seven and a half billion. And God knows you. And he cares for you. And he wants you. And in his grace, he gives us the opportunity to come and meet him. Imagine that you personally know the queen. You've gone for afternoon tea at Buckingham Palace, and one day she's due to visit Flittick. No idea why, but she's due to visit Flittick. The roads are cleared. That would be a miracle in itself, but the roads are cleared. The red carpet is laid out. She does the royal thing, she waves at the crowd, she takes the flowers, she shakes the hands. And then in the crowd she notices you. And she calls you by name to come. Just imagine how you'd feel at that moment. And then consider that there is one far greater and more glorious than the queen and he is seated on the throne of heaven controlling the universe that he has created and he knows you by name. And he calls us and he cares for us. God in his grace has made himself known not only through his creation but through his word. And not only through the written word that he inspired but through the living word. And the God that we're introduced to in the first verse of the Bible is eternal and uncreated. And we realize that we are created and finite. He's enthroned in glory and we are wandering around in the mess this world has become. So how on earth can we know this God? 
Well, it's because he delights to make himself known. He gives the world a glimpse of his glory through creation. He inspired people to write down his words. And then to culminate it all, he gives us one who is the living word. John 1 says this, In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Lord Jesus is that word, the living word of God. He was there at creation. He is God himself, the second person of the Trinity. You know, if the, the, the eternal nature of God doesn't blow your mind, you know, in verse 2, uh, when, you, when you look at verses 1 and 2, and then you piece together the New Testament as well, the Trinity is there in verse, in verse 1. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus uh, Second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He was present and he was active in creation. He is the word spoken by God that brought creation into being. Nothing is created without him. And then John says in possibly the most extraordinary verse in the entirety of the Bible, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word that spoke creation into being, now in his grace, that word becomes flesh. And in Christ, the eternal God entered time. The invisible God became visible. The unknowable God took on flesh and spoke in a human voice and became known to us. That that is grace. That the creator God should enter the creation in order that we might see him and hear him and know him. Genesis 1.1 introduces us to a God who is so far above and beyond us. A great and glorious God who is beyond our comprehension. Who is out of our reach. And the first verse of the Bible reminds us how utterly dependent we are on his grace. We cannot reach him. We cannot understand him. We cannot know him. Except that he makes himself known to us. What grace is ours? That Christ, the living word, is made known to us. Visible, audible, knowable. He reaches us and he speaks to us so that we can know him. In Genesis 1.1, we are pointed forward to our need for this living word who will make the eternal, unknowable, invisible God who is way beyond the universe, a living word who will make that God known to us. And as we piece together the whole story of the Bible, we realize that this living word not only entered the world, but succumbed to death in order to redeem the world. As we'll sing in a moment or two. And who am I? The lowliest of sinners. That you would pay the price my sin deserves. My maker scarred for those who marred his likeness. And from his wounds flows mercy unreserved. And yet as we sung in a song earlier on. Because Christ is the living word. Death could not hold him. Because the living word lives again. And in his resurrection power is even now making all things new. In just a few weeks we'll see how the perfect creation that God made was ruined by human sin. 
And the Bible tells us that therefore all of creation is now groaning, longing for the day that Jesus will make all things new. And so we wait in eager expectation and join the song that all creation groans. Lord, haste the day, decay is slain by glory. The day you call your sons and daughters home. In the beginning, through the living word, God created all things. And through that same living word, he's making all things new. The God who created is the God who will recreate. And in that new creation, all who have trusted in Jesus Christ will see the invisible God, will know the unknowable God, will live eternally with the eternal God. And in the meantime, we're called to bow in worship at the greatness of God, the glory of God and the grace of God. Shall we pray? Lord God, we marvel at your greatness. We humbly bow in the presence of the almighty, eternal God who is way beyond our understanding, way beyond our finite human minds. We bow before you. But Lord, we're conscious that we can only bow before you. We can only come before you because of your grace. That you sent your Son, the living word who became flesh. That living word who has redeemed us by his blood. That living word who is making all things new. We praise you and thank you for Jesus our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand and sing that uh, new song that was taught to us at the beginning.